we should use neuroscience more actively, yes. understanding the brain, control the brain, and putting the patients in exactly the states we want in order to have better states of anesthesia, which will lead to better care and better surgical outcomes as well. So mm -hmm. I, basically, we, we have not exploited, to the extent that we've made and learned a lot more about the brain, that information has been readily incorporated into designing new anesthesia techniques. So mm -hmm. I think I think the, the possibilities are totally wide open in that regard. Oh, wow. So it's fascinating. So you're basically saying there's a, there's a hell of a lot more to do in terms of the field of anesthesiology that you, you're pretty much maybe just in the embryonic stage by the we, looks we, of we are, it, it, something it, it, years. You're completely right. It is There's a hell of a lot more to do. And, it, and we are in the embryonic stages because we haven't even scratched the surface as far as using you know modern neuroscience to really improve anesthesia care. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. One of the current topics, they talk, we listen. Can you imagine getting into a business or a market where you actually spend a hundred billion plus on a piece of paper. Are you kidding me? It was like a frying pan of the head. I got nothing against CFOs. It was not just the job of a lifetime, it was the job of a thousand lifetimes. My guest today has been described as the world's expert on statistical analysis on neuronal data, with his work on anesthesia being truly transformative for the field. A renowned computational and systems neuroscientist, statistician, and an anesthesiologist, he served on President Obama's Brain Initiative Working Group. A member of an exclusive club, he is one of a handful of individuals who has been elected to all three branches of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. With a plethora of awards to his name, yet again, this is going to be an exciting episode for the Neurotech series. But before we get into that, here's a brief message. U.S. Private Capital Forum Go Real 2023 launched now until the end of March, with on-demand sessions offering attendees the utmost flexibility to access industry-specific content and deals on their terms. It will bring together over 100 speakers from across Europe over a broad agenda covering private equity, venture capital, real estate and private debt. For details, visit www.eurosforum.org. Heads Talk podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. Professor Emery Neil Brown is the Edward Hood Taplin Professor of Medical Engineering and Computational Neuroscience at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's also the Warren M. Zappol Professor of Anesthesia at Harvard Medical School and an anesthesiologist at Massachusetts General Hospital. He has made and continues to make significant contributions to the advancement of the science behind anesthesiology. We will talk about this in greater detail during the course of this discussion. Professor Brown is also recognized for his statistical research in which he has developed statistical methods and analysis dynamic processes in neuroscience. He is the first anesthesiologist to be elected to all three national academies, and if that wasn't enough, he is also a fellow at the National Academy of Inventors. In recognition for his many accomplishments, May the 15th, 2016, was named Dr. Emery Neil Brown Day by the Marion County Board of Commissioners. 
In 2020, the Society of Neuroscience awarded him the Swartz Prize for Theoretical and Computational Neuroscience. Other accolades include a, a US National Institute of Health Directors Pioneer Award, the Guggenheim Fellowship in Applied Mathematics, the American Society of Anesthesiologists Excellence in Research Award, the Dixon Prize in Science, the Pierre Galletti Award and the Gruber Prize in Neuroscience. Professor Brown holds three US patents and co-authored the book Analysis of Neural Data with Robert Cass and Yuri Eden. A uh, link to the book will be provided in the show notes. Let's begin. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Professor Brown to this new series on Headstalk. Delighted to have you here today. Thanks for having me, Elaine. It's my pleasure. Excellent. Okay. First of all, I'd like to say um, Happy New Year to you. Uh, Thank you, likewise. <laughs> yes, I know. And, um, and many thanks for joining me today. Um, I've been looking forward to this episode with you, Professor Brown, and I think my, my listeners will really enjoy this one. Um, as part of my research, I've listened to a number of your talks and lectures on YouTube, and I have to say, it's such a delight and a real pleasure to listen to you talk. It's almost cathartic, actually. Okay, let's begin with this. Your academic studies were mathematics, applied mathematics and statistics. Mm -hmm. How did that lead to anesthesiology today and the various roles you have in academia and health institutions? Well, it's a bit of a, a meandering path. I knew when I went to college that I wanted to do, I wanted to become a physician. And I thought that, and so when I, when I started college in the United States, you don't have to major in biology to to become a physician. I was majoring in Romance languages. <clears throat> and the idea that I that I had was I was going to work for an organization like Médecins Sans Frontières or maybe for the mm -hmm. World Health Organization. But through my sophomore year, I became more interested in statistics and, and I decided to switch my concentration to applied mathematics. So I switched to applied mathematics, all with the intent of going to medical school. Mm -hmm. I then um, needed to learn more mathematics, and I wanted to continue with my romance languages, so I spent a year in France studying mathematics at the Fourier Institute in Grenoble. And then I came back into the MD-PhD program, MD, and then also PhD in statistics. So that's how I eventually put them, sort of did training in both areas, essentially. Mm -hmm. But how did that lead to anesthesiology? Oh, so that's a, so what happened there was... That's a crazy I, um, route, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, while I was uh, doing my PhD, I was a graduate student, also a medical student. I was also a dorm advisor at Leverett House at Harvard College, one of the Harvard, Harvard residences. Mm -hmm. And I had this very open door policy. The students just come and see me anytime. If there's a problem, I'm there for you. That was my job. That was my responsibility. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed that. And it was a lot of fun. <clears throat> and I realized that I felt that that was the way a, um, a general practitioner would have to be or a family care, right. a, a primary care physician would have to you know, run, you know, his or her shop, you know, always having an open door as patients needed you. And then I realized that that type of work would burn me out. I, I didn't have the energy levels to sustain that. So I needed a, a maybe a different branch of medicine, which is a bit more focused. Mm -hmm. And I had exposure to the anesthesiology department in Mass General Hospital when I was an undergraduate, because one of the advisors of my undergraduate thesis, Jack McPeak, was there in that department. And so I had enjoyed anesthesia when I did it as part of the rotation for surgery. And I came back to him and asked if I could do a rotation so I could apply in anesthesiology. I really enjoyed it. I loved the physiology. I loved the pharmacology. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to apply for residency in anesthesiology upon graduating from medical school. And because I, I just, it would, 
the the one thing was it was is it's very patient oriented patients are usually scared out of their minds when they're coming for anesthesia mm -hmm. for surgery so you had important patient yeah. contact but at the same time it was a it was much more sort of focused or scheduled sort of uh sort of uh practice than than yeah. let's say being a general yeah. practitioner yeah okay okay let's let's talk about data science um i think this is because i when i watched one or two of your talks um, this came up. Um, you you were working and interested in science meshed with data long mm -hmm. before its popularity. Why was that? What were the driving forces for that? I, I think there were two things. I think I was loyal to both areas. I was loyal both to the physiology. When I did my PhD thesis, I learned all the circadian physiology I could because mm -hmm. I worked on circadian rhythms during my, during my um, PhD. And then <clears throat> I was very loyal to the to the statistics, to the to the the, the design of the, the algorithms in the most principled way possible. So I always felt committed to doing both the best as possible. And my from my perspective, that meant that I had to have a deep understanding of the biology that I was trying the physiology I was trying to model, as mm -hmm. well as statistics. So I, I always saw them as I always saw as the best way to link them is to be is to work deeply in both areas. That's good. Thank you for that. Okay, let, let's go into some detail uh, about um, your scientific research work. Um, mm -hmm. One in particular that I read about decoding brain signals. What exactly is that? And can you elaborate for my listeners in a way that most can understand, which I'm sure you will do, the research work that you did there? Yes, yeah, so I had the good fortune of working with Matt Wilson, who's a longstanding colleague, at, and Lauren Frank, who was his PhD student at the time, was now a professor at a UCSF Matt Wilson was and still is at MIT. And they had done, they had been doing research when Lauren was a graduate student with Matt on some very interesting biology in the brain, in, in the area of the brain called the hippocampus, which is responsible for short-term memory. You have these neurons that have these really interesting properties they're called place cells. In other mm -hmm. words, what the place cells do is they spike as an animal moves, they, you know, they, they give elect off electrical discharges as an animal moves mm -hmm. around in an environment. So that after a while, if you watch enough of the, the cells and their activity, you can probably figure out where the animal is in the environment. You could read the representation of space from the neural signals in mm -hmm. the, that, the, that the neurons are putting out. And mm -hmm. so I worked out an algorithm to do that very, very efficiently and very accurately. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And, you know, in, in looking at that for myself, but and I wanted to look, you to explain this for my listeners, what is the state space point process, SSPP paradigm, uh, and what is its purpose? Well, so it was exactly for this purpose to basically read out. So the point processes are the spiking activities, so the little individual pulses, the neurons. Neurons communicate by giving off electrical impulses, bip, 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 like that. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a group of them, they're all sort of giving off these little bips, these little electrical impulses one at a time. And so once you have enough of them together, you have the group activity. And then the state space is basically a way of tracking that information over time in a continuous way. It's exactly the same. So if you think of the neurons as being like little radar in the environment or giving sort of representing the environment as like little radars. And so when the animal comes through their various, the, 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 the span of space that that particular little radar covers, it, it starts, starts spiking. And mm -hmm. then if, if they're overlapping locations, if more than one neuron is spiking at the same time. And then the state space allows us to translate that information 
from the from the ones and zeros that the neurons are giving out into an actual position statement about the animal. It's the same paradigm that's used to track satellites now or to track spacecrafts. It's the same principle. Instead of having radar, you have neurons, which are, and so the point process part is the ones and zeros of the neuron, the spiking activity, electrical impulses of the of the neurons. Excellent, excellent. That was clearly explained. Thank you for that. Um, now, now let's look at the the different states of the mind that we're all familiar with. Um, these next set of questions will will enable us to gain some some understanding of what's going on in the different states. So, so can you explain the following? What's happening to the brain? during these states when I'm asleep? So when you're asleep, you're actually in a state of um, a physiologic state that has a number of purposes. And we think it's important for, it's important for health. It's important for sort of rejuvenation. It's important for memory formation. And so it's something that we do every day, ideally, you know, seven to eight hours a night, but most of us don't get that much sleep. Mm -hmm. And it allows us to recover so it's necessary in health to so we can recover <clears throat> and then be in our best state of health. But it also allows us to consolidate memories and also get rid of things which we which we sort of don't need. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But before I move on to the next one, because you said it, it allows us to recover. But like a lot of us, there's a lot of activity going on while we're asleep. So, you know it's almost like a, a paradox to say we're recovering while there's a lot of activity going on in our heads in, in terms of the kind of dreams we have. That's that's right. So imagine two stages. So there are two main stages of sleep, roughly speaking. There's REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, and non-rapid eye movement sleep. And mm-hmm. so let's just say to first approximation for this discussion, during the non-rapid eye movement sleep, what you're doing is the brain is resting. You have large slow waves, okay? Mm-hmm. And then roughly every sort of 90 minutes you flip into a state of REM sleep where the brain is actually doing some working. It's actually strengthening some connections, weakening others, replaying things that, that you've done during the day so that you can form them into, um, you know, sort of long-standing mm-hmm. memories. And so it's in those stages when you have, the brain is most active and where we do most of our dreaming. All right, okay. All right, the, the next one, being <clears throat> under general um, anesthesia. Yeah, so that's the thing that we've studied the most. And so general anesthesia, it's a it's a man-made it's a man-made drug-induced reversible coma. Mm-hmm. And what we do is we put you you need to be in the state so you're unconscious, you you won't perceive any pain, there's no memory formation, you're not moving around, and we do that while maintaining you physiologically stable, stable heart rate, blood pressure, oxygenation, etc. So that and then once, so that, and we put you in the state, and it's important to think of it as a drug-induced reversible coma, because you need to be in a state of coma in order to tolerate the trauma of surgery. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the cool, the cool part about it is we can place you in the state, and then we bring you out of it once the surgery is over. All right, and that's completely different, you would say, to being asleep. It's entirely different from being asleep because sleep is a state of decreased arousal. In other words, you're seemingly unaware of what's going on. However, as soon as I shake you, I can wake you up. Oh, but but by design, and I emphasize that by design, with anesthesiology or the state of general anesthesia, what we're doing is we're putting you in a state where you're basically, like I said, a drug-induced reversible coma so that you can tolerate the, again, the trauma of, of, of a surgical intervention. At the risk of being a little bit crude, is it almost like the general anesthetic? Is it almost like being dead? 
No, it's not because it's reversible. It, 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 it's more analogous to being in a coma where a coma is caused by, let's say, trauma. And so, but the, but, the, but the part of the coma that we create under anesthesia is that we do it in such a way that we can reverse it. Whereas with a traumatic injury, yes. some part of the brain has actually been damaged. And then you try to help the person recover that function so that they can then wake up and come to. But are you in the same state as if you're uh, sort of in an anesthetic state where you, there's no memory if you're in a, a, a trauma caused coma? Because most comas like that are pathologic. I wouldn't say you're in the same state because, so let me say it this way. So the drugs, when we give them for anesthesia purposes, go through different parts of the brain and they have ways of turning off the brain, turning off those various circuits, let's say the mm -hmm. cortex, the thalamus and the brainstem. Mm -hmm. So in the case of a traumatic coma, you could be traumatic, you could be completely unconscious in a coma because you just damaged your cortex. Mm -hmm. You could be unconscious because you damaged your brainstem or, or your thalamus. So it's it's not they're, they're, in other words, while externally they may look the same, but the areas of the brain that are effective and the extent to which they're effective are quite different. And again, I just have to emphasize under anesthesia, it's the reversibility that's so key. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'd like to throw in another one because it just it's just come to me. Um, hypnosis. What state is the brain in in that state? Well, it's, it's very interesting because in hypnotic states, we actually had started to embark on a study of hypnosis. We didn't go through with it. But, you know, it turns out that under hypnosis, if you measure the EEG, the brain is actually quite active. So it's a, it's a, it's a state where through external suggestions, mm -hmm. the cortex is in training the rest of the brain and telling it sort of like what to do. So, and again, there, if you were, you, while well, hypnosis can help augment like the state of anesthesia, it by itself wouldn't be enough to allow someone to undergo surgery. Right. Okay. Okay. There was a sort of a, a eureka moment. Um, I saw in one of your videos, um, anesthesia and the dynamics of the unconscious mind. Um, <clears throat> yes. Mm -hmm. Really, really fascinating. Where you talked about how the anesthetic drugs take over the brain circuits, a sort of cause. Mm -hmm certain I don't know, neural motions or oscillation. Can you, for my, my listeners, please just elaborate about the time you discovered a clear link with the application of anesthetic drugs and certain brain activities, certain activities within the brain really. And importantly, what did that mean going forward? Well, so here's the, here's the situation with anesthesia and just in research in general. So we had known since the early, since the mid eighties, thanks, thanks to the work of Nick Franks and, and, and uh, Bill Lieb, mm -hmm. that anesthetic agents, when they act in the brain, they bind to specific receptors. Okay, and that was a very important discovery. That was a very important insight because it took us away from thinking about anesthetics, just getting into the mm -hmm. membranes of cells or neurons and just disrupting them, just sort of, in other words, what they pointed out to us that the drugs had specific targets. Yeah. All right. So then the thing that I realized once you said they had specific targets, you want to understand where the how the drugs were acting. So map out where those targets are in the brain and map out how those parts of the brain are, are connected. And then the, the the part that then put it together was once you wrote out that map of here's where the targets are, here's how the various parts of the brain are connected. Then, you, then, then there's another factoid. As you gave anesthetic drugs, you start to see these very highly structured oscillations. And the question became, 
with the mapping that we had made out, could that explain the oscillations? And it turns out that it did, it explains it very well mm -hmm. because certain parts of the brain are connected. And when the anesthetic drugs start to act at those targets, they generate, they don't, they don't necessarily shut the brain down, although you can if you give a large enough dose, mm -hmm. they actually cause reverberations in the electrical currents that go between those various areas. And so the, the oscillations that we were seeing, they weren't an epiphenomenon. They were actually part of the process through which the drugs were acting in the brain. Mm -hmm. And then we just realized that <clears throat> over about a six-week period from being in the operating room where I was using, I was on different services, so I was using different combinations of anesthetics, I got to see that the different drugs had different patterns. And we, working with our colleague, Nancy Capel, who's a mathematician at Boston University, we came to appreciate that we could explain those patterns based on knowing where the drugs binded, the connection between those regions, and they gave rise to the oscillations. And the oscillations we inferred was like an, a very important feature for the anesthetic mechanism for causing the state of unconsciousness. Because you can imagine if I generate oscillations, which are very, very large, when the brain has these sort of smaller oscillations, mm -hmm. it's going to make it very difficult for the parts of the brain to communicate because it can't transmit the information the same way it transmitted it when, you know, when the oscillations are smaller and much more refined and flexible. Mm. You know, and I want, I want to let the listeners know that I will put a link to your, is it the TEDMED video? And there's another one about this. I'd really like them to have a watch of that, where you explain that in all its full glory with diagrams and illustrations and stuff like that. And I think it'd be very interesting for them. Okay, um, I, I want to talk about two roles and how they work with each other on an everyday basis. That is the, the anesthesiologist and the neurologist. How do they <laughs> complement each other? What is the interplay between the two bodies? Well, it's interesting, you know, to be frank with you, in most instances, it's not as, it's not as robust as you might imagine, and that's unfortunate. And I think part of it, I think a good part of it is mostly our fault as anesthesiologists, because one of the things that I've been trying to do in my research is encourage the, the deeper use of neuroscience in the mm -hmm. study of anesthesiology and the improvement of anesthesiology practices. And the, the principles in clinical neuroscience are our neurology colleagues, our neurosurgery colleagues, as well as our psychiatric, psych, psychiatric colleagues. Mm -hmm. And we have not we have not had the type of back and forth discourse that we should, you know, and, and as a consequence, I think we've failed to make progress as rapidly as we could have in understanding anesthesiology, mm -hmm. as well as helping them understand uh, sort of many of the pathological conditions that they're trying to treat. Because, and it turns out that anesthesia has a very, anesthesiology and anesthesia has a very robust link with a lot of different areas, a lot of phenomenology that you see in brain disorders it can be models for brain disorders, and it can also be sources for therapies. Let me just give you one example. So like right now, <clears throat> ketamine is used as a painkiller and it's used as an anesthetic. But it's also now being used by our psychiatry colleagues to treat depression, which is unresponsible to other unresponsive to other medications. Mm. Ketamine is also a model for schizophrenia. And so, so, so there are very, these very rich links between psychiatry, between neurology mm -hmm. and anesthesiology, which need to be exploited more going further, because a lot of the things that we do, that we, a lot of our, the anesthetics that we're using by studying how they act in the brain, we learn more about the brain. We get ideas about therapies. And we also mm -hmm. can improve mm -hmm. 
approach to anesthesiology as well as to neurology and psychiatry in certain in, in certain cases. Mm -hmm. and, and how would you say the two bodies fundamentally differ? Well, the, so we're our primary role as anesthesiologists is to pray, is to safely shepherd a patient through the, as I said, the trauma mm -hmm. of a surgery. Mm -hmm. right? And to make sure that they're physiologically stable and they come out on the other end in the best physiological and, and, and sort of mental conditions possible. The neurologists, are, their, their responsibility is to try to decipher, um, you know, neurological disorders mm -hmm. and sort of convert the symptoms into understanding of what pathologies may be occurring in a patient and try to translate those back and come up with, with very plausible and workable therapies to treat them. Hmm. Do you find that now in recent times you were working, anesthesiologists as well as neurologists are working closer together, especially with the advent of sort of some of the, the newer tech that's out there, newer technology? Do you find that? Oh, I have from the outset, even before the neuro, neurotechnology. The mm -hmm. first major paper that I wrote in, uh, in anesthesiology, we published in the New England Journal of Medicine. My co-author was Ralph Leidig, a, a sleep specialist. PhD sleep specialist. My other co-author was Nico Schiff, a long-standing friend who's a neurologist. So mm -hmm. it, it was just very clear to me I had to work in concert with them right. because they knew a lot about the brain. And let's just face it, where the drugs are acting, it's in the brain. And so we should have a, a constant, continuous dialogue yeah. among us in order to, to, to help each other, basically. <clears throat> yeah, I, I can see that. Um, and, and, and as this is the um, newer tech series, let's concentrate purely on the tech side of things just for a bit. Um, mm -hmm. How is the, the development and explosion in newer tech helping you with your work and progress to deliver better for your patients? Well, I think um, I think one of the first things is like, for example, using the EEG. The EEG is an old device. It was, you know, first proposed by Hans Berger back in 1929. Mm -hmm. And still, still just as simple as this device is, it has a lot of information which you can use to read the brain states of patients under anesthesia, let's say patients that date in the ICU, but mm -hmm. we're not using it. And so just sort of you develop implementing education programs to teach anesthesiologists how to use this device and then use it effectively. I think that that's just that's actually a very, a lot of progress which can be made with low tech and not even high tech, essentially. Mm. And then from there, I think the, the thing that I'm most interested in, or one of the things I'm very much interested in, is developing control systems that can read the EEG in real time and actually guide the anesthesia delivery as an, in a sense of like an autopilot, like an autopilot flies a plane in yeah. the middle part of flight. In the middle part of a long surgery, it's going to be from four to, let's say, to 12 hours or something like that. Doesn't make sense to think that the anesthesiologist should be twiddling the gases or twiddling the infusions every, every, every couple minutes or so. A computer could do that much better than a human. Yeah. So I, I see that as like a very uh, doable and sort of uh, very accessible approach. <clears throat> I hear an excited tone in your voice. Am I right in saying that? Oh, very much so because it, it's it's we've done it. We've done it in rodents. We've now done it in non-human primates. And we're hoping to perfect our non-human primate system to the point where we can get approval from the US FDA to test it in humans. Mm -hmm. right. Okay. Um, this podcast is all about leaders, executive C-suites largely, um, working and communicating in boardrooms. Um, a fly on the boardroom wall is one of our hash hashtags. And we look at the synergies at play here. Your boardroom is the surgery. Um, 
what are some of the things you believe is imperative to ensure a sort of seamless execution of roles in the theater? I think the, the most important thing is communication. In other words, the surgeons are focusing on the surgery. We're focusing on the care of the patients. You know, the, the nursing team, you know, sort of shuttles between them, you know, sort of helping, helping out. And I think the most effective, the most effective operating room environment is one where there's very open communication and people are, are able to and free to speak their minds, particularly when there are questions or, or, or challenging situations. I think that's the most, that, that's the most important thing. I think the captain of the ship model mm -hmm. where someone has to, yeah. is, is sort of running the, sort of the operation and giving orders, I think that that's archaic. Uh, but how do you ensure sort of this open communication that you talked about, this sort of full collaboration at all times? Your situation is very different from that of um, the corporate boardroom because it really can be life or death at the point of delivery. Um, talk me through some of the collaborative acts and behaviours in the environment, especially when things don't go to plan. Well, so this is actually very interesting because this is something that we've, we've worked to foster um, by... We do, we do um, a good amount of simulating tra simulation training. It's actually mandatory for our recertification mm -hmm. in which we actually act, we work through scenarios um, where, you know, problems arise and we, we practice, <clears throat> we practice managing them. That's, that's one piece. And I think that's very, very important. The same way you practice, you know, your, mm -hmm. your, your CPR, your cardiac life support, you know, the advanced mm -hmm. cardiac life support the same way. And I think that, you know, we have now protocols in place. So I'll just give you one example. So one of the things that you do at the start of every case is the nurses run a checklist in which we do everything. Everybody introduces themselves. Mm -hmm. And then everybody says, um, and then we have, we, we, we go through making sure identifying the patient, identifying mm -hmm. what we're going to do, any major concerns. So for example, if I have a concern about a problem, which I expect to see during the case, I, I voice it then. So, when X occurs, you know, we may need to make, consider these, mm -hmm. we may have to consider these issues. And so it, this checklist at the beginning is designed to open the environment so that we can have this free communication. Hmm. And I would say, I'd say most of the time it, it definitely works. Clearly there are people who sort of buck the system, but they're becoming, they're becoming sort of a thing of the past. Right. Okay. That's good. I, I like that. I like the sort of the clear rules defined checklists, um, open communications. I mean, I mean, that's kind of across the board, isn't it? Whether you're in a theatre or whether you're in a, a corporate boardroom, really. Um, oh, oh, very much so. But you see the, but you see, it's an evolution because you know I think most of the model, uh, so the the thinking, has up until now been that you know there's the surgeon who's the captain of the ship, yeah. and then you know, he or she gives orders and everybody else sort of falls in line, and that that's basically not possible anymore because every the nursing yeah. what the nurses have to do is a highly developed skill what we have to do is anesthesiologists a highly developed skill what the surgeons are doing is are, are require highly developed skills so we need to coordinate as a team mm -hmm. do you feel that um all the team members have to be a little bit more versed on the tech that's been deployed because <clears throat> of all the new stuff that's coming up and in and in and in around your work environment Oh, oh, very, very, very much so, because, um, you know, as the surgeons start to use new technologies, let's say they're robotic surgeries, yeah. I have to know how that's going to change what I'm going to do for anesthesiology. I'll give you an example. So one of the robots, which is used for abdominal surgery, 
requires the patient to be placed in a very steep head down position, like maybe about, you know, 20 degrees head down. Yeah. So someone who's very, a patient who's very obese, has heart disease, who maybe has difficulty breathing, being in a head down position like that for an extended period of time could be a trouble. Mm. So maybe we have to relax the head down position from 20 degrees, maybe up to up to 16 or, or, or 14. Now that's better for the patient, but it also makes it harder for the surgeon. So we, so that, so there's work like that that has to be done to find the appropriate compromise that sort of meets all the objectives. Mm, okay, and it does it does help to have a background in mathematics um, when it comes to things like that. Okay, um, let's end this episode of, of Heads Talk with some loose stats, actually guesstimates. What's left to do? What percentage has been done in mastering <clears throat> anesthesiology, and what do you think is left to do? You know, it's not an exaggeration. I think everything is left to do because, <laughs> you know, anesthesia, at least the practice of anesthesiology in the United States began in 1846, October 16th, with the first public demonstration of ether anesthesia at National Hospital. And mm-hmm. right now, almost 177 years later, we're still using ethers as one of our primary anesthetics. Mm. In that sense, we haven't gone very far at all. <laughs> so there's a lot to be done. To, to, so, to, to establish new paradigms. We should be, and, and it goes back to the questions you're asking at the beginning of the interview. We should use neuroscience more actively, yes. understanding the brain, control of the brain, and putting the patients in exactly the states we want in order to have better states of anesthesia, which will lead to better care and better surgical outcomes as well. So mm-hmm. I, basically, we, we have not exploited to the extent that we've made and learned a lot more about the brain, that information has been readily incorporated into designing new anesthesia techniques. So mm-hmm. I think I think the, the possibilities are totally wide open in that regard. Oh, wow. So it's fascinating. So you're basically saying there's a, there's a hell of a lot more to do in terms of the field of anesthesiology that you, you're pretty much maybe just in the embryonic stage by the we, looks we, of we the are, last it, it, something it, years. You're completely right. It is there's a hell of a lot more to do, and it, and we are in the embryonic stages because we haven't even scratched the surface as far as using you know modern neuroscience to really improve anesthesia care. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 in some of the guests I, I was talking to, not necessarily about uh, um, anesthesiology or um, care in that set, that sense, but a lot of them talking about brain implants and the developments of that in that sense, and I'm I'm wondering mm. if that perhaps at some point anesthesiology will tap into that once it's developed I don't know we're talking about 10 or 30 years times I don't know once it's developed to a certain level that perhaps it's not a, a medicine that will be the uh, uh, that will be used as anesthesiology in as right. anesthetic it will be a tech form or something that's implanted within the brain to uh, like you said you're, you're decoding what's going on in terms of signals so I, I don't know I'm, I'm talking out loud and I'm just sort of imagining I'm probably watching too many star treks but i'm just thinking something like that can you no i i think i think that's a i I think that's a very uh i think something like that along those lines is very much is is very possible in other words not just having anesthetics which flow through the the circulatory Mm -hmm. system and reach the brain but maybe Mm -hmm. approaching the brain directly from some sort of external device that's placed on the head or that type of thing thing are quite possible. They, they did it in Star Trek, so that means it must be possible to do in reality. <laughs> okay. Yes, yeah, so, because I was imagining that it would be sort of a shift from the sort of the medicine to that. Okay. Yes, but you see the key thing there, the key thing there is, you see like right now, 
we've been able to give these drugs for many years and not really know how they work, but then say we can still generate the state of anesthesia because you practice it empirically. For the mm -hmm. level of these sort of novel ideas like you're suggesting now, you won't get there without understanding how the brain works. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that yeah. that's fundamental. So it goes back to really getting the fundamental neuroscience in place to sort of sort of create the next generation of approaches for anesthesiology. And I, I think, okay, while we're talking about sort of world theories here, perhaps with um, anesthesiology and and neurology, there will be a, a sort of an in between um, role and a new definition in terms of an individual that that will be the sort of the go between between the two in terms of understanding exactly what's happening there in order to ensure there's a, a, I don't know, a seamless link between the two. Because from what I gather from you, it's there's an element of working in silos, which is not helpful for the, the profession. Right. Well, I, I think I think you're right. And I think where we're actually seeing those sorts of people develop are in our, in our intensive care units. So mm -hmm. if you have an anesthesiologist who also trains and works in a neurointensive care unit, that's where they actually get the sort of cross-pollination that you're referring to. Yeah. So those sorts of individuals are being created right now, you know, as, as yes. we speak. And, mm -hmm. and if they then, but then they, what we then have to do is sort of, again, use those ideas that they're learning to sort of try to improve anesthesia care from a neuroscience perspective. Mm. And perhaps a new defined role, be def you know, will, will emerge out of that. I think I already know what the title of this episode will be. I think it will be called the, the nexus between neuroscience, newer technology and anesthesiology. What do you think about that? I think I think that's uh, I, I, I think that's a, a, a great title because I think that, as I said, I, I'm convinced that the future of anesthesiology lies in neuroscience. Mm. Mm. And, and I think that the deeper understanding and you know we we have a unique window on the brain i mean think about it there are 60,000 cases of anesthesia done a day in the united states 60,000 times we take people in and out of a very profound state of coma and think of all the information we would gain if we started paying more attention to what was actually happening we could make rapid progress in sort of developing new techniques which would be useful for anesthesiology neurology as well as psychiatry and I suspect, Professor Brown, you'll be at the helm in all of this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be trying to do my share. Let me just put it that way. Uh, definitely. I'll be, I'll be watching. Professor Emery Brown, the pleasure has been all mine. Many thanks for your time and insights. Oh, great. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.